Well, it is good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. We uh, are continuing our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's initial defense of justification by faith in chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. In chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians, Paul continues his apologetic and defends justification by faith from two standpoints. Two standpoints. And really, if you think about it, if you boil the book of Galatians down, that's entirely what it is. It is a defense of justification by faith. In chapters 3 and 4, he just continues the same theme. And first, he defends this precious, essential doctrine uh, from the standpoint of personal experience. And that's chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Personal experience is a, is a good thing. It's not the same thing as feelings. Feelings are a different thing. Personal experience is different from feelings. Feelings aren't necessarily bad. God has given them to us, but they're not reliable. But personal experience can be reliable. When we look back on how the Lord has worked and done things, our experiences with Him, that can be a good thing in moments of trial. That can be a good thing in moments of doubt. And and so on and so forth. Um, I know that uh, there have been times in my own life where I've had to go back to past experiences to get through certain things. I mean, I, I don't know about you, is there any other doubting Christians in here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I'm racked with doubts, I tend to look back and say, no, no, the Lord has done this, and He has done this, and He's done this. There have been times where I've, I've had doubts like where I, I don't, did I bring myself into this thing and it's just so confusing and, and bogged down, I'm talking about the faith, and how, how did I get into this thing to begin with and can I take myself out of it? Then I have to go back to that initial experience where God saved me when I wasn't even looking for Him. So experiences are, are good things. They can be a rely, reliable testimony to something. And in the section that we're going to look at, Paul reminds his readers that a believer's experience of Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit, of suffering because of faith, and of God the Father, they, they are incontrovertible evidence of having been graciously made acceptable to God through faith, apart from any human efforts or works. In other words, our experience with, with, with the, the Godhead and even our own suffering because we believe in Jesus, those things testify that we have been made right with God. We are justified through faith. And that's Paul's entire point in this next section. So that's the first standpoint. It's personal experience. He's calling for the Galatians to look back and to say, what is your experience with the Godhead and with suffering? And, and how do... How, how does earning your way with God and trying to earn your salvation have anything to do with your past experiences? Because they don't. It doesn't, those things don't have anything to do with it. That's his point. So that's the first standpoint. Secondly, Paul defends justification by faith from, I think, a much more solid um, foundation than, than past experience, which is good, but he defends it from the standpoint of scriptural revelation. And that would be chapter 3, verses 6 through chapter 4, verse 31. That's really almost the entire two chapters. 
So you've got two standpoints that he defends this precious doctrine, experience and scripture. And this morning we're going to look at the first standpoint. We're going to look at the four experiential examples that, that Paul gives in the text that I've already pointed to. Please take your Bibles and, and turn over to Galatians chapter 3. It should be on the screen. Verses 1 through 5 is our text for this morning. I have entitled this message, A Defense of Justification by Faith from Experience. Because that's what this text teaches. I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we pray for your help before we get to work. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It's that simple. It's that simple. That's like a dinner prayer, right? Now let's pick up where we left off last Sunday and begin with Paul's first experiential example. Okay, number one, the Galatians' experience with Jesus Christ. We see this very plainly in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to how he begins his admonition here, his correction of them. He, and this is, this, is, this is spoken with so much force. He says, O foolish Galatians, notice the punctuation. And he says, Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Stop there. The believers in the Galatian churches allowed themselves to be deceived by Satan and, and by the Judaizers. They embraced the Judaizers' message of dual justification, the belief that a, a person is justified before God by faith plus works. It's Roman Catholicism in a nutshell. Paul calls them foolish for doing this. Paul is saying, your initial experience with Jesus Christ, you were justified by faith alone, and now you've given yourself over to a lie that's been taught to you. This is what he's saying, and he calls them foolish. He calls them bewitched. I like that word foolish there. It is anoatos in Greek, anoatos. And it, it doesn't necessarily refer to a mental deficiency. Usually when we think of a foolish person, maybe it's because they have a mental deficiency. It, it doesn't really refer to that. There's nothing lacking in the mental prowess or power of these people here. It refers to apathy or to laziness or to carelessness. That's what it means. The believers in these Galatian churches were not dummies, they were not stupid. They were not foolish in terms of mental ability. They simply failed to use their spiritual intelligence when they were exposed to the unscriptural, gospel-destroying message of the Judaizers. We have an expression, I think, that, that captures the meaning of noatos. When we see a person making foolish decisions or acting foolishly or, or being foolishly complacent when action is required, what do we usually say of, of that person? We say they're not using their head, don't we? Well, obviously, Fred is not using his head. He's been making bad decisions. That's what we say. That's the meaning of a noatos here. 
when they heard the false gospel message of the Judaizers, they did not use their heads. They did not process and think through. And I think the reason why they did this because it was because the message of the Judaizers was very tantalizing. And it's very tempting. And, and, and it sort of brings about a false assurance. When you're told that you can earn your way with God, that falls, our, our Adamic nature leaps with joy and it wants to try to earn its way. And so when we hear a message like that, we say to ourselves, well, that's pretty good. I can earn this and I can do this and I can get this from God. And that's, that's how we respond to it. And they just weren't using their heads. And this message that was being preached to them, it made sense. This Greek word here, noatos, it, it carries the idea of, of maybe a wrong attitude of heart or a lack of faith that, that clouds our judgment. Jesus actually used this exact Greek word when he encountered two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish ones, O anoatos, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is what Jesus said to these guys, Luke 24, 25. Their basic problem was not mental but spiritual because they had not carefully studied the word to believe the prophets. They failed to understand that as the Messiah, Jesus not only had to die, but that he would be raised from death and he would return to his Father in heaven. Their understanding failed because their faith had failed in a sense. They didn't use their heads. They didn't take the word of God seriously. And they couldn't put the pieces together regarding Jesus. The believers in Galatia had foolishly fallen into Judaistic legalism because they had stopped believing and applying the basic truths of the gospel. They followed their whims and their impulses rather than God's revealed truth. And in doing so, they forsook the basic truth of the gospel, that, that men come to salvation and live out salvation only by faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. MacArthur wrote something good here in his commentary. He says, the, the Christian life is neither entered nor lived on the basis of good feelings or attractive inclinations, but on the basis of God's truth in Christ. This is a message America needs to hear because America is now fully led by its feelings. And many Christians are fully led by their feelings, which is disastrous. He says, Christians who rely on self-oriented emotions instead of Scripture-oriented scripture minds are doomed to be what? Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's citing Ephesians 4.14. He says, when they judge an idea on the basis of how good it makes them feel or how nice it sounds, rather than on the basis of its harmony with God's word, they are in serious spiritual danger. He's saying this because this is, in a sense, what was happening in Galatia. Well, we know the gospel. We know we're justified by faith. But what these Judaizers are saying kind of tickles my ears and makes me feel good about myself, knowing that I can somehow earn my way with God. I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. But to the average Joe Christian or to the immature Christian or to the Christian that doesn't use his brain, sounds pretty good in theory. MacArthur says this because they just weren't using their heads and they were guided by emotions and, and feelings and what sounds good and they weren't measuring what they were hearing against the rock-solid eternal truth of God. 
And we see that today. Another detail here that's very interesting. Notice how Paul calls them Galatians instead of brethren or brothers. He isn't, he's not like Bruce, hey brothers, hey sisters. None of that here. He calls them Galatians. He calls them by their nationality. And he did this on purpose. Uh, Martin Luther says that Paul did this to remind them of their national trait to be foolish. <laughs> well, that almost sounds bigoted or, or racist or something. It's not. You need to understand the context, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and particularly, and back then and today, but back then especially, they, they act pretty foolishly when it comes to religion. They have a tendency to, to either invent or to embrace various forms of false religion. What's a prime example of this? Greco-Roman religion, Greco-Roman mythology. That is the, almost one of the highest expressions of pagans or Gentiles just coming up with the gods of their own doing. And, and this is what Gentiles do. And the Galatians were no exception to the rule here. By calling them Galatians, Paul is in effect saying, by embracing the spurious teachings of the Judaizers, you are acting like Galatians, not like people of the word. When we embrace the spurious teachings of, of maybe the prosperity gospel or of health and wealth or of other theological anomalies, are we not doing the same thing? Are we not acting like Americans rather than people of the word? Huh? Americans pursue anything and everything that will improve their lives. That's what we are known for. We are addicted to prosperity. We are addicted to good health. We are addicted to wealth. We are addicted to comfort and ease. This is why the church is so flimsy in America. But the Word of God does not guarantee prosperity and good health and wealth and these sorts of things. And the people of the Word who study the Bible and know this, they know this. They know that the Word doesn't promise these things. And so they don't, they don't fall into these traps and, and, and pay attention to that kind of preaching. And, and we say to ourselves, well, how are some of these churches full of people? Because these people are not people of the word. Because if they were people of the word, they wouldn't be duped by these charlatans. The word of God doesn't guarantee any of these things. But they don't know the word, and they're not students of the word. They're not people of the word like the Galatians. So what happens? They get lured away by false teachings, by things that tickle the fancy, by things that tickle the ears, by things that stroke the flesh, by things that bolster the ego, by things that bolster and build pride. This is what happens. If a fellow brother in Christ was acting overly patriotic, Trump, 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 or like a, a greedy pleasure seeker, I might say, quit acting like an American. Because that's what you're acting like, not like a person of the word. And that's what's happening here. That's the meaning. 
Paul is saying, you guys are acting like Galatians. You're not acting like Christians. Stop being foolish. Stop being led astray. Use your heads. Stop listening to the Judaizers. They're preaching a false gospel. You cannot be justified by faith plus works. You're justified by faith alone. That's it. And Paul adds, who has bewitched you? The Greek word for bewitched is boskino, and it means to charm or to fascinate in a misleading way, as by flattery or false promises or maybe occult power, and it clearly suggests the use of feeling over fact and emotion over clear understanding of truth. That's the meaning of bewitched. Boskino can carry the idea of sorcery, but MacArthur says that's not the case here, but Luther disagrees. Luther disagrees because Paul mentions sorcery in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. So he thinks that that's the meaning here. Either way, or either way, these believers had become charmed by the flattering, man-centered message of the Judaizers. Work really hard and God will justify you. Work really hard, get circumcised, do all the things we tell you, and God will bless you. God will save you. God will prosper you. It's that stuff. And, and we need to understand that a desire for those things, the pursuit of those things, is embedded in our fallen nature. It is embedded in our fallen nature to work and to earn it's actually embedded in, I would say, working was a good thing at first. And God created work for man. He actually creates Adam outside of the garden. I don't know if you knew that. Everyone thinks he was created in the Garden of Eden. He wasn't. He was created in the wilderness and placed in the garden to work. Work is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. But because of our fallen nature, our view of work, our view of salvation, our view of God is completely distorted. Completely distorted. After the fall of man, man's view of God, work, and salvation became utterly distorted. Think of Cain. You know Cain, the first created man, or the first man to be born of Adam and Eve. He had a distorted view of work and of salvation and of God. He disobeyed God's instructions, right? Initially, he does this, and and he, and he attempts to set up his own system of righteousness. <laughs> you know what doctrine was in place prior to this? The doctrine of justification by faith alone. Cain says, I don't like it. I want to add faith. I want to have faith, but I want to add some works to it. He's the first man to try to... He's the first Roman Catholic. And I don't say that to attack Roman Catholics, but you must understand they believe a false gospel. Do all of them? I don't know. Instead of Cain simply believing God and, and offering up a bull or the blood of a bull like his brother Abel, like they were instructed, what did he do? He works the ground, he raises up some crops, and then he presents those things to God. Here's the way that I'm going to save myself. And yet God rejects his offering because it was based on his system, not on God's system. Genesis 4, 1 through 4. Cain was really the very first Judaizer. He tried to earn justification 
through works. He was also the very first murderer because he slayed his brother Abel in the field because of bitter jealousy. God accepted Abel's offering because it was according to God's law, so to speak, and he was enraged by being rejected by God because he thought he could bring about his own thing, and he kills his brother because of it. Genesis 4, 8. Distorted view of, of, of salvation, distorted view of God. It is a distortion to think that you can somehow, through your efforts and obedience, earn justification. That's a distortion, and it's been around since the very beginning here. Paul asks these foolish Galatians rhetorically, who did this to you? Now, he knew the answer to this, right? He knew that it was the Judaizers. They were the bewitchers. And yet Luther emphasizes Satan's influence here. Uh, Luther knows that the Judaizers were totally involved in this, but he believes Satan's behind it, and I agree. Wherever there's evil men, Satan is there lurking behind them and working. Luther wrote this, The spiritual witchery of the devil creates in the heart a wrong idea of Christ. Those who share the opinion that a person is justified by the works of the law are simply bewitched. Their belief goes against faith and against Christ. That's a pretty serious set of statements there. And it parallels perfectly with what Paul said back in chapter 1, where he said those who teach justification by faith plus works, they are accursed. That's how serious this issue is. And yet we say, yeah, I think Roman Catholics are okay. Are you kidding me? Paul says they're cursed. He's going to say this again later in this chapter. What does that mean? We need to mistreat Roman Catholics? No, we need to preach the gospel to them. They need to understand that they're not justified by what they do, but by simple faith in Christ. That's the true gospel. He says, who did this to you? And he knows. It is Satan. It is the Judaizers. After calling them foolish and, and bewitched, Paul reminds them of his past sermons where he did what? He says here, portrayed Jesus Christ as publicly crucified before their eyes. When he and Barnabas planted these churches 18 months earlier, and we talked about that, didn't we? It's only 18 months before this church was given itself over to a false gospel. It didn't take long. You'd think that they would have stood on that firm foundation a little longer, but they didn't even make it two years. They came through here and planted these churches almost two years earlier. Paul preached vivid messages depicting Christ on the cross dying for our sins. He immersed the Galatians through his preaching in the passion narrative, the suffering of Christ through powerful storytelling, through potent illustrations. Paul was a phenomenal preacher. Maybe like Jonathan Edwards who would preach so powerfully that people would literally scratch nail marks in the pews as he preached. The Greek word for portrayed is prographo, prographo, and it refers to a placard in the marketplace or other public location for citizens to read. It basically means public sign. That's the Greek expression of 
portrayed. When Paul preached the gospel to the Galatians, he figuratively placarded Christ crucified before them. They could almost see Jesus hanging there on the cross. That's how vivid and, 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 and illustrative his preaching was. They could, they could envision and see Jesus on the cross. They could almost hear the, the, the ringing of the hammer as it drove the nails through Jesus' wrists and, and feet. They could visualize in their mind's eye the, the, the blood flowing from his wrists, flowing from his ankles, flowing from his, his brow where that, that crown of thorns had been placed, flowing from his side where that, where that spear entered. That is the meaning of prographo. I think we get the word graphic from it, probably. As Paul placarded Christ crucified before the Galatians in the public square, by the way. He did all of this out in public. He didn't go into people's homes and do this. He preached in, 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 the, in the shopping centers and in the marketplaces when he entered these cities. He went right out there and did open-air street preaching. And when he did this, these, these Galatians, when they heard his gospel presentation and the, the vivid illustrations of these things, they could, they, could, they could see these things happening and playing out. And they were convinced of Christ's atoning death, and they were convicted of their sin, and they, they were ushered by grace through faith into the very kingdom of God. They believed. They were saved. But when they turned to legalism, dual justification, they were defying or denying the one whom Paul publicly portrayed as crucified for their sins the one whom they came to know and to trust and to love, Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, the greatest symbol ever known to man of justification by faith alone is this. This is where Christ died to pay for your sin and to justify you. And it's... It's a simple faith in the one who died here that brings justification. There's no works that you can do down here that change anything. In fact, the works come after you're saved and justified, not beforehand. I think Paul is, is just insanely frustrated with them here. He's still loving, but he's, he's frustrated and, he, and he's angered because... Paul despised false gospels just like Martin Luther did and just like we should. During a Ligonier conference Q&A, R.C. Sproul was asked why God was so harsh on Adam for sinning in the garden. And what happened to R.C. Sproul? He became frustrated. Are you kidding me? Adam and Eve committed cosmic treason against God. And you think the punishment was too great? And he blurts out, what's wrong with you people? It's one of my favorite quotes. I have a little sticker that Dave gave me on the back of my car. And it's R.C. Sproul in a cartoon figure saying, what's wrong with you people? I can't even imagine what people are thinking when I'm driving and they're reading that. It's a message to them. What's wrong with you? You're too close to my bumper. Gave me the one-finger peace sign because I didn't use a signal. What's wrong with you? He gave this response because he, he was aggravated by such a, a, an infantile, puny, ridiculous question. 
And, and I think that's what's happening here. Paul is saying, what's wrong with you foolish, bewitched Galatians? You, you need to look back and remember your experience with Christ. And remember what happened on the cross where he justified you, where he did that for you. Now, you need to understand that Paul was not saying these things to tear the Galatians down, but simply to remind them of their experience with Jesus Christ. To remind them that, that Jesus earned their righteousness through perfect obedience. And Jesus died to pay for their sins so that they could be in right relationship with God forever through faith, not through effort, not through works. Now, is not the crucifixion of Christ the ultimate reminder of our own sinfulness, our own failure to, to obey God's law, our total inability to justify ourselves? Does not the cross say that to us? It shouts it. It shouts you could not save yourself. It shouts that you couldn't earn your way. It shouts that Christ had to come to pay the price for you. There's no effort, no amount of effort that you could do to ever justify yourself. That's what the cross screams. The crucifixion is a wonderful reminder. That's why Paul's pointing to it. Y'all didn't justify yourselves. He did it for you on the cross. Remember who I talked about 18 months ago? What's wrong with you people? You know, when we are tempted to try to earn our way with God through works righteousness, because that is a legitimate temptation we all experience. We all are tempted to do that. We need to remember the cross because it is where Christ died to pay for our transgressions, our sins. It is where Christ died to redeem us from the curse of the law. Why were we cursed by the law? Because we failed to obey it. Galatians 1.4, Galatians 3.13 speak to this. As I said, the cross shouts, No one will be justified by works of the law, but by faith in the one who died here, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every cross you've ever seen shouts that, with the exception of the Roman Catholic crosses that have Jesus still dying on them. Those crosses inspire you to work because Christ is on that cross dying and looking at you and saying, what's wrong with you people? Why aren't you working at it? Why aren't you following the papacy? Mellow. <laughs> Mellow. Because I know my wife's starting to go, and he's starting to yell. And this is where I tune out. I, I don't yell like this anywhere else. Only in the pulpit. It's probably because Bruce is staring at me. <laughs> Who could withstand that stare? <laughs> I think we ought to be passionate about these things because it's a matter of life and death. But I don't think I have to yell all the time. His first point, their experience with Christ. He died. He justified you. You know this, you love him, you were called by him, you love him, you've been following him, you believe this all along, now you're taking up the lives of the others. Go back to your experience with Christ, that's what he's saying. It's really that simple. Number two, the Galatians' experience with the Holy Spirit, verses three and four. Paul says this next, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Oh, man. That, that's, a, that's a double barrel blast from a 12-gauge. That, that's a hammer. He's, he's taking these believers in the Galatian churches back to the moment of their conversion. When they were first saved, when they first believed, they were Gentiles, right? These are, these are, these are Galatians. They're not Jewish people. They're non-Jewish Gentile people. They're, they're pagan peoples who believe in false gods. They, they do not have the Mosaic law, meaning the law of Moses. They, they don't live like Jews. They don't think like Jews. They, they don't have the covenant blessings of the Jews. They don't have anything to do with any of those things. They don't know the law of God. They knew literally nothing about those things. They were living utterly pagan lives with no knowledge of God's covenant, no knowledge of God's commands. They knew nothing about circumcision. That was strictly a, a Jewish thing. And when Paul rolled through Galatia during his first missionary trip and preached the gospel in each town, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully and raised these lawless, non-Jewish, heathen pagans to life, just as he did for me. Paul points to that moment, that moment in their lives and says, early on when you received the Holy Spirit, did you receive him through your works of the law or by hearing through faith? They knew the answer to the question. They had received the Holy Spirit when they heard the gospel and believed, not through works of the law. Why? Because they didn't have the works of the law. They didn't have the law. And remember, the message of the Judaizers is if you follow the law, you'll be justified. If you follow the law, you'll be do this. If their theory is correct, then, and, and they were never obeying the law like the Judaizers said is necessary, then, then, then the gospel would have never came to them in the beginning because they didn't have the law. That's the point. Do you understand? They're telling these people you need to obey laws that they were unfamiliar with and knew nothing about when they were actually saved. So they got saved. Now we have to obey the law? Now for them, they knew nothing about the law when they were actually saved. They heard the gospel. They believed. That's a work of the Spirit. Hearing and believing, was, uh, hearing and believing the gospel was the moment of impact. The law had nothing to do with that then because they didn't know the law. And that's how God's system works. The Holy Spirit and faith come through hearing the gospel, not by doing works of the law. Romans 10, 17. If the gospel is being faithfully preached, and I say faithfully because today churches have their own version of the gospel and 99% of the time it's not a faithful expression of the gospel, but if the gospel is being faithfully preached, the potential for salvation and for conversion and regeneration for the, the Spirit's power, it's all there if the gospel is being preached. If something else is being preached or if the law is being preached, the potential is lost. I could sit here and preach the Ten Commandments to you and just preach those to you. They're, you're not going to get saved until you hear about how Jesus satisfied those commandments for you because you couldn't. That's the gospel. The preaching of the law has never saved a single person. Never in the history of the world has anyone ever been saved 
through the preaching of the law. People are only saved through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which describes how Jesus dealt with the law for us lawless people. That's his point. And Luther says this marvelously. He says, nobody, that's your word, Dennis, marvelous. Nobody ever heard of the Holy Ghost being given to anybody, be he doctor or dunce, as a result of preaching of the law. Does that not sound like Luther? Dunce? I love that. Got a cap in the corner. Real pointy. Paul is saying the same thing about works of the law. The, the law cannot bring the Holy Spirit, nor can it bring faith. That is not the job of the law. Only the gospel can bring the Holy Spirit. Only the gospel can bring faith. Peter had, when Peter had first witnessed, actually, Peter had first witnessed, that's how I'm supposed to explain this. Peter had first witnessed Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit when he preached the gospel to Cornelius and his relatives and his friends at Joppa. That's the time in the book of Acts where Peter first saw Gentiles actually get saved. And listen, listen to the scene, how this plays out. While Peter, and this is right from Acts 10, 44 to 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, that, that would be Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. How was the Spirit poured out upon them while these Gentiles were obeying the law of Moses? No, while Paul was preaching the gospel. When Paul met some disciples of John the Baptist at Ephesus when he first entered that major city, he sought to determine the completeness of their faith by asking, because they were kind of like Christians, but not really. He wanted to figure out where they landed, and he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And when they replied no, he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, and then they received the Holy Spirit, Acts 19, verses 1 through 6. So, so what's going on here? Because that's a confusing narrative. Well, the Holy Spirit came when these people heard the actual gospel, not while they were under the gospel-like teachings of John the Baptist. The believers in the Galatian churches had a, a, a genuine experience with the Holy Spirit, just as these other people in the book of Acts and, and as we did. When they first heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit came in power and raised them to new life. And they believed in Jesus Christ. And from that moment, the Holy Spirit became their guide, right? Because that's what happens. John 16, 13, He will guide you into all truth. They knew this. They understood this. And yet these Galatians needed to be reminded because the Judaizers had charmed them into thinking they were now being perfected by the flesh as they obeyed the law. The law can never Perfect your flesh, no matter how good you are at obeying it. Only Christ can do that, His righteousness. Paul is basically saying here, if you receive the Holy Spirit 
apart from the law, why do you think you need the law now? Because that's your exact position when I came and preached the gospel. You didn't know the law. Is, are, you need, think you need to go to the law now because the Judaizers say so? You don't need the law. It will not perfect you. Go back to the starting point. Trust in the Holy Spirit whom you've met, who converted you, who's been guiding you, who's been leading you into all truth, who convinced you at one time that you were justified by simple faith. Go back to him. That's what he's saying. Luther again, he says, The law does not bring on the Holy Ghost. The gospel, however, brings on the gift of the Holy Ghost because it is the nature of the gospel to convey good gifts. The law and the gospel are contrary ideas. They have contrary functions and purposes. To endow the law with any capacity to produce righteousness is to plagiarize the gospel. The gospel brings donations. It, it pleads for open hands to take what is being offered. The law has nothing to give. It demands and its demands are impossible. Spoken like a man with his doctorate. You had an experience, you have experiences with the Holy Spirit who came to you and raised you to life when you knew nothing about the law. He justified you when you knew nothing about the law. Go back to Him. Go back to that. Let's move to his third experiential example. Number three, the Galatians experience with suffering because of faith. This is expressed in verse four. Paul says it like this, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Like most Christians in the first century, the Galatians had suffered various kinds of persecution. It was very unpopular and dangerous to be a Christian uh, during that particular time and, and at many other intervals or times in history. John's older brother, James, was murdered by King Herod. You remember the story in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that in 64, 65 A.D., Emperor Nero made Christians into human candles by dipping them in tar and setting them on fire. Very, very dangerous to be part of what they called the way in the first century. The way is to follow Christ. Very, very dangerous. The reason why Christians experienced so much suffering through persecution was because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the rule. That's why it happens, even today. It's because of faith that we suffer. It was faith in Jesus Christ that, that set off the Jews and Gentiles. Why? Back then, and, and even today, in a sense, because faith flies in the face of works righteousness. That's why it's so offensive to the fallen world. The fallen world doesn't want to hear about simply believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. It wants to hear about how it can earn its way into heaven. There's 10,000 religions in the world, and all of them are screaming, work, work, work. That's what people believe. That's what they want to believe. That's what they want. And when you start talking about, about faith and, and, and trusting in Christ alone, and that's how you're justified, that's how you're saved, it just it sets people off, especially Jews. 
when Paul initially preached the gospel and, and, and faith in Jesus Christ in Ephesus, the entire city erupted into a riot because the Ephesians thought he was attacking their mascot, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of childbirth, and their entire in, um, idolatry industry. They, they actually made little idols and sold them as an expression of worship there. Acts 19, 23 to 41, Paul's message threatened their system of works righteousness, and that is why they rioted. That's why they, they drug Jason out of his house and others and wanted to kill Paul and, and his companions. Don't you dare come into our community and tell us that we have to simply believe in Jesus because we believe we have to have these little idols and we have to pray to them and we have to do good deeds and we have to do all... Don't you dare. That's the world we live in. Now, think of the flip side. A religion that promotes works righteousness, it's not offensive at all because most people think they can earn their way to heaven. Right? Nobody gets offended when you say, I'm working really hard to go to heaven. People say, way to go. How can I support you? See, that particular message of false religion, it's, it's offensive only to us Christians because we know better. We know you can't earn, our way, earn your way into heaven. So it's offensive to us. It's not offensive to the world. When people are told that, that being a good person and doing good deeds will pay heavenly dividends... No one gets upset. No feathers are rustled. Instead, egos are stroked and pride is bolstered and sinners are made to feel good about themselves. This is why Joel Osteen has 30,000 people in his building every Sunday. You understand? If that guy actually stood up there and said, you better repent of your sin because you're headed for hell and trust in Jesus Christ, he'd lose half his congregation on that Sunday because he has not taught them that since day one. People feel good when you tell them, hey, it's all about earning. God will pull out the scales and your good deeds will outweigh the bad and he's going to let you right in. He's going to tell Peter, hey, get the keys and open the gate like it's a Trans Am. Get that Jersey thing coming out right now and I don't have anything to do with Jersey, just like they didn't have anything to do with the law. <laughs> Got to make the parallel. You start talking about working and earning, people, woo, yeah, I like that. That sounds really good, man. That tickles my flesh. That makes me feel good about myself because I'm a pretty good person. And no one's good, not one. But when you say that no one will be justified by what they do and point to Jesus Christ in faith, all hell breaks loose. The believers in the Galatian churches had experienced this. Because they lived according to simple faith, according to a simple gospel, and that's what they preached. And all hell broke loose for them at some point. They suffered because of their faith. Their faith in Christ, their gospel message had gotten them in trouble over and over and over, and it will get you in trouble if you stick to what you're supposed to stick to. Paul is, is simply saying this, Consider the many things you have suffered for the sake of the gospel and for the name of Christ. You have suffered the loss of your possessions. You have become or you have borne reproaches. You have passed through many dangers of, of body and life. You endured much for the name of Jesus Christ and you endured it faithfully, but now you're in danger of losing everything. The gospel, faith, love, and the, the, the spiritual benefit of your sufferings for Christ's sake. 
You're giving it all up to go to a works gospel that everyone's going to love but doesn't save? You're going to forfeit everything you've been through, all your experiences, Christ and the Spirit and all of your suffering. You're going to forfeit all of that on the altar of works righteousness? What a miserable thing to endure all these afflictions for nothing. That's what he's saying. Let's move to his fourth and final experiential example. The Galatians example with God the Father, verse 5. He says it like this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You know, it's God the Father who supplies the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will ask my Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 14, 16. You remember the last night of his earthly life before he was actually snuffed out on the cross the next day during the, the, the last supper and, and that final evening that he said that. I'm going to ask the Father when I go to him and he's going to send you a helper. The helper is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus also said on that evening, if I do not go away because the disciples wanted him to stay... If I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, John 16, 7. I'm going up there to tell the Father, and the Father's going to send him. And if I don't go away, none of that's going to happen. You're not going to have the Helper. You're not going to have the Holy Spirit. You're not going to have a day of Pentecost. You're not going to have new life. You're not going to have anything. It was God the Father who also worked miracles among the believers in the Galatian churches? What miracles? The text doesn't say. Some speculate there was healings and all these sorts of things that were happening during the apostolic era. I don't know if it's any of those things. I tend to agree with Luther on this point here. He thinks that Paul was referring to the fruits of faith, which are present only in those who have been supernaturally transformed in the people of God, in believers. And the fruit of faith that Luther had in mind here is Christian love, agapao, agapao. It is the deepest and most profound love of all. It is the love of God. It is selfless. It is sacrificial. It is the love that God has for his special, unique people, the elect. It is the love that, that his people, he has given them this love, and it is the love that his people share with one another, agapao. The deepest, most profound, it's, it's a saving love. Now, obviously, we don't save anyone, but God loves and He saves in accordance with that agapao love. It is a saving love. It is a healing love. It is the love that can mend a shattered, broken heart. And it comes straight from God, and it doesn't exist anywhere else. It's not the love of this world. It's not a love that's even present in this world unless God bestows it. Luther thinks that that is what Paul is talking about here. This love is totally unlike the perverted false versions we see in our day, right? You know, we're always hearing about love and love and love, but then we analyze the context and we say, that's not love. Rachel and I were in the mall recently and we walked by K Jewelers and they had a, a large LED screen behind a glass window and there was an image of two men embracing and kissing on it and the the heading said, love is love. That's not love. That's Romans 1, lust. Our culture, our society is just too depraved to figure out the difference. And it's tragic and it's sad that, that our world has taken love 
and redefined it to be that. And then it gets the culture to get behind that, and then homosexuals go right into hell. We better not call it love. We better call it what it is and preach the gospel to these people. If we actually love them, if we love homosexuals, we're not going to get in their face. We're not going to condemn them. We're not going to damn them. We're not even going to judge them based on their behavior. We're just going to simply say that God's word addresses this thing here, and it warns about it. And there is a way out of it through Jesus Christ. But that's not love, beloved. It's not. It's lust. When Paul started preaching the gospel in Galatia, the, the Holy Spirit came in power and he transformed lives, right? Churches were planted throughout Galatia because of the work of the Spirit through Paul's preaching. The Spirit gave these new believers throughout these churches in Galatia the, the fruits of faith that, that Luther is pointing to here, and more specifically, this supernatural agapao love. And what happened? They began to share it with others, and they began to express it even to Paul, because Paul talks about it in chapter 4, 13 through 15. Listen to this. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. It sounds to me like Paul kind of went into some of these places because he was sick, not because he intended to go there. And we need to stop off at Ceres up here because I'm not going to make it. That's what it sounds like he's saying. But in any case, he says, you know I came to you firstly to preach the gospel because I had an ailment. I had a problem. I think he's talking about that thorn in his flesh. might have been his eyesight. And listen, he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, okay, so, so whatever he had, it caused others to be burdened because he wasn't fully functional. Maybe they had to help him get around. It sounds to me like he had an eyesight problem. I don't think he was totally blind, but something was wrong here. But he says, you know my condition, it was a trial to you. And he says, and yet you did not scorn or despise me. Why? Agapao. But you received me as an, as an angel of God. You received me as if you received Christ himself. And he says this, listen to this. He's talking about the agape love they had. He said, for I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul had an eyesight problem. And they had this deep affection and agapao love for him so much so that he believes that they would have just, look, I, I can't stand the fact that you can't see very well, so, so take my eyes. That's what he's saying. And in verse 5 of our text, in light of all of that, Paul is asking, did works of the law produce this miraculous love in you, or did it come to you from God the Father by hearing with faith experience taught them the answer it was from god the father working through hearing and faith not through works of the law they didn't have the law listen and this this is this is what happened here in this church and it's it's tragic the first thing to go when a believer exchanges law for gospel is love that's the first thing to leave your life the first thing to go, let me repeat, the first thing to go when we exchange law for gospel is love. Love is replaced with a, a self-righteous, critical, judgmental spirit. Why? 
Because the law does not produce love. It never can. It produces either pride or despair, absolute condemnation. We know that. Look, if you switch from gospel to law, you will lose love and you will become mean. The law makes people mean. That's not God's intent, but that's what happens when the law falls into the hands of sinners like us. And this is precisely what happened to Paul and the Galatians. They loved him to the point of giving their eyes, but then when they gave themselves, when they, when they left the gospel to go to the law, they became mean. And he says to you, what has happened? What has become of your blessedness, right? Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, what has become of your blessedness? He says this, does this sound loving from them to him? Have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? They gave themselves over to a false gospel. They gave themselves over to the law, to dual, dual justification. It, it, it changed the dynamic in the church. It changed them. It transformed them. They went back to who they were beforehand. And Paul experienced firsthand the love lost. And he says, what happened to your blessedness? Do you not see, do you not understand that the God who gave you this love, go back to that. Do you not understand what he's done for you? That he worked that miracle of supernatural agapao love in your lives, in your hearts, and now you have left it because you've gone to the law? Come back to the gospel and start loving again. What are you doing? Again, Sproul, what's wrong with you people? That's this text. That's what he's saying here. He's, he's, he's defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone through experiences and they had plenty of experiences they had experienced jesus they'd experienced the holy spirit they experienced suffering because of their faith they experienced god and god's supernatural love in their lives they had all of these things but the moment they walked away from the gospel and went to the law they became unloving and they were in danger here danger I would simply close with this, our experiences with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with suffering because of faith, and with God the Father, they can, these experiences can serve as, as powerful reminders when we are tempted to give ourselves over to the law, when we are tempted to give ourselves over to works righteousness and try to earn something from God. That's the application we have these experiences with the Godhead and with suffering, not because of works of the law, but because we heard the gospel and believed it. How many of you were actually doing all that you could to obey God's commands when you got saved? I didn't even know the law of God when I got saved. And I think, Bruce, you had some experience with works righteousness, but was it the law of God or the law of that religion that was guiding you? Exactly. Who of us got saved at a pivotal moment when, I mean, do we actually believe that, you know what, I was obeying God's law and then I got to this heightened level and then the Spirit came and redeemed me because of all my efforts? Roman Catholicism, Judaism. I was a lawless Gentile pagan when I was saved. I knew not God's law. I didn't learn about God's law until afterwards. And the same is true of you. These are these experiences we've had, these experiences 
the word of God is, 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 the, is the best reminder that we have. But experiences are important. And they're not the same thing as feelings. You think about your own experience. When we believed the gospel, when the Spirit came in power and we believed the gospel, it was at that critical moment in our history, in our lives, that we were literally eternally justified. And this cross bears witness to that because He did all that's necessary on it to justify us. It's His work that we're justified by, not ours. At that moment, God declared us righteous and He adopted us into His family forever and ever. There's nothing that can separate that bond. It is from that point, after we were transformed by the Spirit, after we believed, we repented, those things, it's after that moment, after the moment that we were justified and all that, from that point on, we began to serve the Lord through good works. The works followed. They didn't lead us into this thing. They came afterwards. That's the message here. We began to serve the Lord through good works, not because our justification depends on it or requires it, but because we love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. Amen? Amen. Remember these things, beloved. You can't earn your way with God. Christ earned it for you. We believe in singular justification because that is the very gospel. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone according to Scripture alone. Faith alone. Not by what you do, but by simple faith and trusting in Christ. That's how you are justified. And if you have true, real Christian experience, you look back through your experience and the encounter that you had with Christ and all the work that God's doing, and you will know that it had nothing to do with your works, but it was based entirely on Christ's works for you. If someone says we're not saved by works, they're lying in a sense because we are saved by works. They're just not our works. They're the works of Christ. He's the one that earned our justification. He's the one that lived out the law perfectly. He's the one that did it all. Therefore, he deserves all the glory. But when we start saying, well, we're justified by believing and by what we do, we strip him of what he did. We rob him of what he did. We diminish the cross. We diminish the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is offensive to God. He willfully, it pleased him to crush his son in your place to bring about your salvation, to bring about your justification, to bring about your adoption, to bring about your righteousness. Don't add anything to it ever, ever. Just believe. Just believe.